Welcome to Clear Vision. Here we have exclusive up-close and personal conversations with legendary musicians. Our program is devoted to examining what makes people great. Needless to say, everyone has a unique story, a clear vision, and we're here to bring it to you. Welcome to Clear Vision Podcast. I'm Doug Bowder, and I've worked in the music industry most of my life as an educator, publisher, author, musician, and entrepreneur. I've had the honor of talking with some of the legendary names in the music business, and what I found out is that indeed everyone does have a unique life story, a clear vision on their journey to success. And who better to tell you about these stories than the musicians themselves, their aspirations, dreams, and the decisions they've made that shaped their lives in music. For over 30 years, Danny Elfman has established himself as one of the most versatile and accomplished film composers in the industry. He's a four-time Oscar nominee and has collaborated with, well, really the who's who of directors in the industry. Beginning with his first score on Tim Burton's Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Elfman has scored over a hundred films. This is an interview I did with Danny in his home studio in the mid-90s while he was finishing up what has now become an iconic film for Disney, The Nightmare Before Christmas. As we were setting up the camera crew for the interview, I glanced at the shelf above a large mixing board in his home studio. The master tape boxes were lined up neatly in a row and they listed his completed projects, Batman, Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, Spider-Man, Summersby, Batman Returns. I just stood there in awe. And now the list has multiplied exponentially. Beetlejuice. 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 It's showtime. It certainly is. Welcome, Danny Elfman. What you been up to? Not doing anything, just sit on my hammock all day long, dreaming. No, no, I've been working very hard, obviously. Um, two careers, which as of a, a year and a half ago became three careers. Um, so it's uh, pretty much a, a constant juggling act. Well, your music is amazing. I'm a fan for sure. When it comes to film scoring, were you influenced by other genres like musicals? Not when I was little. I actually have gotten to like it more uh, when I became an adult. When I was little, I only watched horror films, and I hated musicals. I actually really detested musicals. And it wasn't until I became an adult and started really getting into 30s and 40s music very heavily. Actually, a late teenager, I discovered Gershwin and 30s music, and that led me to Kurt Weill and Three Penny Opera. And then I started rediscovering uh, early Rodgers and Hammerstein, going, hey, this is good, and Cole Porter, and uh, began to really appreciate The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> those songs, well, how great those songs were, how I knew them, even though I didn't really know The Wizard of Oz, but I already knew all the songs. And I said, that's interesting, they really wrote good, simple stuff back then. And uh, it's funny, because now that's part of this big drive I've been on the last two years, has been trying to re- uh, re-establish a certain kind of a musical, a very old-fashioned musical. And it became, uh, after years of talking to the studios and going, how much old musicals were so much better than new musicals, and they'd always ask me, how come they don't seem to work as well as they used to, and da 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 I always give these big lectures, and suddenly I found myself uh, doing a Tim Burton musical two years ago. It's just coming out this Halloween. We collaborated on a story he had years ago, and I found myself completing a big old-fashioned musical. It's called The Nightmare Before Christmas and uh, it's Disney's uh, Christmas musical for this year, for 93. 
and two years because it's a two and a half year project. You know, those animated projects are really long and drawn out. And I had so much fun writing the music to it because it's not contemporary and it, it really doesn't sound like the musicals that they're putting out even at Disney right now. Um, that I immediately went and launched two more myself. And one is at Interscope and another one is ending up at Disney as well. And uh, so it's really fun. So I finished five songs for one, I finished five songs for the other. Um, Nightmare Before Christmas has ten songs. And uh, it's great. I'm got all these things at different stages. I am the one hiding under your stairs. Fingers like snakes and spiders in my hair. Nightmare was an old treatment that Disney found from when Tim was an animator there a decade ago. And they said, hey, we got this fun little poem story that Tim Burton did. We should do this. And uh, all of a sudden it sprang to life, but it had been like this thing sitting in a file. <laughs> it's not cell animation. It's the first really stop-action animated feature. So the way they're shooting it is not animators drawing. They're, they've got these created, these figures, and they're all miniature lit sets. So if you go in there, you'll see nine little sound stages, all shooting like a real movie, all backlit, all sidelit, all lit, and people very carefully moving each figure and then shooting at one frame at a time. And it looks like an entire movie studio shrunk down small. And the sets will be about as big as the side of this room that we're in. But um, it's like a, a sound stage shrunk down to the size of, of this room. Well, your music has uh, like a childlike fascination to it. It's full of surprises. It's fun to listen to. What kind of things were you into as a kid? <laughs> Just horror films and horror film magazines and horror film models. And uh, that's pretty much my only interest as a kid. Did you play music as a kid? No, not at all. I imagined, I wanted to be involved with film, not an actor, but I imagined I would be a makeup or special effects, prosthetic makeup. That was my dream when I was a kid and that maybe if I was lucky I'd become a cinematographer or uh, something like that. I never, I, in fact, I imagined myself in almost every aspect of film making except music and or acting, which I never had any desire to do. And music because I never had any musical training and never considered myself musical. So where'd you pick up your musical interest and ability? Well, I, I traveled a year in Africa when I was 18, 19, and I brought a violin with me and I started playing a little violin. And when I came back, I joined up with my brother had started the, this thing called the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, this insane street theater troupe. And I joined up with him in France with a, a troupe called Le Grand Magic Circus, a musical theatrical troupe. So I started to get a, a real love of this kind of wild theatrical musical stuff and started to pick up instruments. I picked up trombone, I picked up mandolin, picked up a little guitar started playing lots of percussion. I brought back a lot of percussion from Africa. And so it was really starting then and over the next decade that I started learning and playing stuff. Tell me about the beginnings of the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Well, it's hard to describe. I mean, the first three, four years we played, we never even played indoors. We always just played on the streets. First, uh, Le Grand Magic Circus was in France, and then the Mystic Knights were out here in Los Angeles and San Francisco. and. Uh, it was, we all played instruments, there was a lot of music, but we also doubled up on other stuff. I uh, learned how to breathe fire, and there was another guy who was an ac acrobat who was a fire breather. So the two of us would do fire breathing, and then we would put 
our torches down, and he would pick up a trumpet, and I would pick up a trombone, and we'd start playing, and there's all these drums going on, and my brother would be... It's, it's difficult to explain. And then over the years, it moved indoors, and it became like a big multimedia... I don't know how to describe it. It's like a review. Um, we had film clips, uh, and we had about 20, 25 musical numbers loosely tied together with this crazy plot and about seven costume changes. and It was just really, really wild, over-the-top cabaret. A lot of 30s and 40s music, about half, and, and original music, about half. And that's where I really started to love older music. And uh, I've always been a little bit misplaced in time. You know, I started doing musicals last year, two years ago, because I hate contemporary musicals. And I started doing rock and roll <laughs> in the 80s because I hated rock and roll in the 70s. So everything I end up doing is because I hate what's being done there and I go, ah, this drives me crazy. I'll do something. I want to do something my own way. See if I can make it a little more interesting. In a lot of ways, you're going backwards in time. Oh, yeah. My, my mind is still half lives in uh, Paris 1931. <laughs> of course, I love to believe that, uh, yes, I was a... Uh, a famous composer in Paris, the late 20s, and uh, enjoyed quite a success. 1933, 1934, I died in a tragic and fiery automobile accident in 1939. But unfortunately, no, I think it's just a fascination. I like artistically what was being done in that period, and musically, it was enormously exciting. I mean, there was the fusion of the very beginning of jazz and uh, the, and what classical music was exploding into, and it was all happen, happening simultaneously between uh, Stravinsky and uh, these amazing composers in Europe and people like Duke Ellington out here and a lot of other American composers. I think Duke Ellington's music for me is still an, an enormous inspiration. Uh, I think he's one of the great, truly great American composers, although not acknowledged as such. Yeah, how many instruments do you play? Well, none. <laughs> not exaggerating, I'm, I'm not a musician. I really don't consider myself a musician. I consider myself a composer and a writer and, and, so, and a, a singer. But instrumentally, I was always a jack of all trades, master of none. I was able to pick up violin and learn by, I always had a really good ear, but I never had the discipline to learn technique or anything. So I would listen to a Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli uh, song from from Paris, uh, Le Jazz, you know, Le Hot Club, rather. And um, I, would, I would learn it. So I'd actually play these solos on stage, old Stefan Grappelli solos. But on the other hand, that's all I could play <laughs> if I had to actually just play um, anything legitimate. I, I couldn't. And on the trombone, I used to mimic the old Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington band style trombone with the metal wah-wah. And that was all I could play on it. On the guitar, um, I'm probably a little more versatile, but I'm miles away from being a, a good guitarist. Uh, I could doodle on, I compose on the piano, but I could never play, sit down and entertain you on a piano, not if my life depended on it. It's just like somebody having stories in their head and teaching themselves to type, but they can only type so fast. They'll get the whole story out, but perhaps they can only read as fast as they typed it, because they never knew the language, they learned it all. But I guess what was that all relating to? Myself as an instrumentalist, I guess the thing is that I didn't learn an instrument first and then learn to write. I started writing first and then learned instruments to play the stuff on. So I, I taught myself and I taught myself backwards. 
I do a lot of things backwards. <laughs> I didn't find out until I'd been playing trombone for, for five years that I was playing it backwards. <laughs> Trombonist no, came up no. to me and he said, no, 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 the, the, it's supposed to be, the bell's supposed to be on this side and you're supposed to do the, the slide with the right hand. And I said, I, it's too late. I put the bell on my shoulder here and I play it with my left hand. So I turned the whole thing around because that's how you play the violin. <laughs> your right hand's out and your left hand's here. So I play the trombone the same way I play the violin. Now, I could never undo that. I tried playing it the right way. It was impossible. So I still play trombone backwards and upside down. Weird Science was your first pop hit, although you had about 10 albums released with Ongo Bongo before that. Tell me about Weird Science. Yeah, I mean, Weird Science was one of only a couple of songs I've ever written that was specifically for a movie, that it wouldn't have existed if, if somebody, John Hughes, came to me and said, I really, really want you to write a song for this. And I talked to him in the car, and as often happens, I started hearing it while I was talking to him, and I ran home and I had a demo uh, a day later, and he liked it, and that was that. So how did you get into film scoring? What were the events leading up to doing your first film? Well, um, I worked on a film that my brother did, like a midnight cult film back in 79, 80. And uh, that was the first time I actually put music in a film. Um, didn't lead to any career or anything. Um, it was in 85, Tim Burton was doing his first feature, you know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and him and Pee-wee, I guess, were talking about composers, and they decided to interview me. Tim used to come see Uango Boingo, the band, and that's how he knew my music. I still never will quite know why they hired me to do the film score. I wouldn't have. Um, I had no experience to do that. Um, but we talked and we kind of hit it off. And I went home and I worked up a demo for an idea. I, I had a concept in mind and they liked it and they hired me. I was terrified. I almost didn't do it. Oh yeah, I came. You know, it was like 50-50. I came so close to going, nah, this is, I think I kind of bullshitted my way into a situation that I then could not fulfill, that I just didn't have the technical ability to see it through. And uh, they hired me and I decided, what the hell, you know, if I screw up, I screw up. Well, the first thing was learning how to work timing, uh, to time everything, because Pee-wee's Big Adventure was a comedy. It had a lot of very precise timing and I wanted it to be like an old-fashioned score where everything caught things very closely. So I had a good music editor, a guy named Bob Batamy, and he really just showed me a lot of the basics of making hits fall, things fall where I wanted it to. And I found that it wasn't as difficult as I thought it was. And once I st that started to feel natural for me, uh, the rest just came in stride. Um, I hadn't written music on paper in a number of years. I used to with the Mystic Knights, and then I stopped with the band, because, you know, with the rock band, there's no reason to write parts out. So it had been many years, so I was rusty. I remember dragging out some old music paper and starting to write down the notes again and going, oh God, I'm making this. I mean, I made so many mistakes. Uh, I probably erased 50% of the notes on the page were erased and written again. But it just started to finally, suddenly, like any project, you know, you work and you work. I work 12 hours a day. I work every day. And suddenly I was halfway through and finally I was finished. When you're working with directors, are they pretty much all the same as far as musical direction? <laughs> well, the directors are, it all depends on the director. There's, 
There's no real rule of thumb other than it's always difficult because the job, your job essentially is reading the director's mind and translating their thoughts, which are always expressed in emotional or physical kind of language into musical language. And uh, um, some directors get really, really picky where every note, can you try it this way, can you try it that way, and they'll drive you insane. And other directors give you a lot of what we call a long leash. Uh, Tim would definitely fall under the, the long leash category, whereas Warren Beatty would definitely fall under the shorter leash category. <laughs> I'm not saying that anybody's right or wrong, um, but uh, they're all different. Let's talk about Batman. What musical vision did you have for that film? There's always, in every movie, there's a section where the director is very concerned that something be clarified or expressed, that they didn't communicate something as well as they wanted to, and that with the music you can help clarify what the character is thinking. And so sometimes you're thinking very specifically, okay, the director wants me to make sure that the audience knows that the person is thinking that something is or isn't going to happen. Either we want to throw the audience off or we want to make it clear that there's something very dark going on or we want to make it clear that the person is troubled. And these are the things you can do with music. So sometimes you're working specifically around this missing element that needs to be conveyed and sometimes it's just as simple as there's the picture. I hear music, okay. There are so many great horror films and actors from the past that have shaped my love for movies like Lon Chaney Jr in The Wolfman, Dracula, and the Frankenstein movies. Films like The Beast with Five Fingers and The House of Wax. Such memorable and classic scores in films. When I heard Dick Tracy for the first time, it brought me back to those times. Well, Dick Tracy, what appealed to me there, what brought me into it was just the romanticism. I always liked, I've always been a fan of old-fashioned film scores. You just mentioned one of my favorite all-time films, uh, Beast with Five Fingers which was scored by Max Steiner, and Max Steiner's scores I'm very fond of, and uh, many of the other composers in what I call the golden age of film composition, which was the 40s and 50s. And uh, so when I have a chance to write something that's from an earlier period, or that's uh, very romantic, that I haven't done that, that appealed to me. So there was this Gershwin romanticism and that I sensed about the feel of it, and I said, oh, I, that I'll really enjoy just like Summer Speed that I just finished. Um, uh, I was really brought in by the fact that it would be not Gershwin-esque romantic, old-fashioned, but a, a really a lush romantic score. There was no action sequences, no car chases, no guns, and that it would be a relatively traditionally based old-fashioned score. I like that because I've been doing so much crazy stuff that I like the uh, discipline then of doing something that is not going to ever shoot out of uh, bounds, it's always going to be contained, and yet it's going to relate back to an earlier period that I really like. In Summersby's case, it was probably the early 50s. Do you get to choose the musicians for your projects? Yeah, I choose the orchestra. Um, I only did one film score, the first Batman in London which was actually the Symphonia. There are several orchestras in London. In the States, uh, we don't have an orchestra. It's all individual musicians. And over the years, I've worked with different musicians that I like, and I tend to, when I'm putting together the orchestra, I'll call certain names of people back again and again. 
uh, my first violinist I've probably been working with on about the last five movies. And uh, it's just a comfort thing. You get used to certain people's playing, and you know that they're, they're all really good. I mean, there are so many good players in Los Angeles that you can get two or three film scores going on the same day and still not be working with second-rate players. But um, I send out a call for all of my favorite players. If they're available, they'll be there. Sometimes somebody is already hired for something else and I have to work with somebody else. But yeah, they, they always give us complete control over that. Although I loved horror and monster films, especially the classic ones, as a kid, they were both fascinating and frightening. I mean, the right. very movie that I think that scared you so badly as a child was The Beast of Five Fingers, was the first movie that really inspired me and made me want to be in films some way or another. I used to go see you know movies five, six, seven times in a weekend. I lived around the block from a theater. I saw The Time Machine six or seven times in one weekend, and uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, all those movies I loved. But The Beast of Five Fingers was the first movie I saw that really scared the blank out of me. Every scary movie is as scary as the age you see it in, how old you are. When I saw The Beast of Five Fingers, I was about five. <laughs> Obviously, nothing will ever be as scary as the first scary movie a five-year-old or a six- or seven-year-old sees because it's reaching right into your brain. And um, I still have dreams about being pursued by a disembodied hand. I even wrote a song about it in the band. It's called Dead or Alive. It's about being pursued by body parts. <laughs> Hey, thanks. What an honor it's been talking with you, Danny. Thank you for hanging out with us. You're welcome. Thank you. What's coming up? Let's see what's on the schedule. It looks like we have interviews with Bill Champlin and Peter Cetera, two major players over the years with the group Chicago, as well as their own solo projects. We also continue with our salute to film scoring with the late, great, but never forgotten, Henry Mancini. I hope you've enjoyed this exclusive interview with Danny Elfman on Clear Vision. If so, please subscribe so you can be notified of our upcoming content. Tell a friend and give us a five-star review. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Doug Bowder. See you next time.